0: in Apex, North Carolina. Stay tuned. At the end of the program, we will give you information on how to contact us. So be sure to have a pen and paper ready. Today, Pastor Rodney will be teaching from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 12. So grab your Bibles and follow along. Now with today's teaching, here's Pastor Rodney. No ministry belongs to a man. Your ministry belongs to the Lord.
1: And when you get the mentality that it's your ministry, that's when you start holding on to it tight. I always tell people, you've heard me say it before, you have been around here for these many years, keep a light touch on ministry. Keep a light touch on the things of this world. Keep a light touch on ministry because it doesn't belong to you. And sometimes God may say, I want to take that ministry from you and give it to this person because I've got something else for you to do. God often does that. I've seen so many people try to what I call white knuckle the ministry. I'm going to hold on to it, man. I'm not going to let it go. And you know what? When you do that, you make yourself miserable and you make the people serving with you miserable. Let it go. If God didn't call you to be there, you don't want to be there anyway because then you're doing it in the flesh. It's not by might. Come on, say it with me. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Well, if we believe that, then let's act like that. And let the Lord do the work. And let God raise up one. I think of Psalm 75, 6 and 7. For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and what? Exalts another. You know that. God will tell you. I'm taking ministry from you. I, you know my story, Lee Sappington. Lee Sappington. I will never, who heard my Lee Sappington story? Oh, Only four of y'all? Oh, I got to tell you. Okay. Lee I'm not. I'm not kidding you. This was honestly, you know, like Sunday I was talking about the trust test. This was my trust test. Lee Sappington. Um, I was doing the youth ministry, Alvaro and I, and when they asked us to do the youth ministry, um, there were like 12 kids, nobody was coming, no, none of the kids were coming or whatever. And so Alvaro and I took over the youth ministry and I was doing crazy stuff with the kids and we had, we had, we had a really good time. And uh, you remember we had a really, really, really really good time. I remember this one time I did this game, I won't tell you that, okay, so anyway. <laughs> So we had a good time, and I love those kids. And we went from 12 kids to like 60. And they were bringing gang members. We had gang members coming to our youth group. And the gang members' dad was bringing them, and the gang members' kids they wouldn't listen to the dad, but the dad would come and tell me, hey, you know, Vato, he's like you know, going, you know, he's, he's going crazy past Rodney. Well, anyway, I wasn't passing anybody. Can you talk to him? And I would talk to him, and, and uh, they never gave me a hard time. They never gave me a hard time. And um, I mean, they tried a few times, but you know. And um, I love those kids; and those kids love me. And one day, the pastor came to me and told me that Lee Sappington was coming on staff, and they were giving him the youth ministry. <laughs> I'm like, oh, <laughs> "That's just great." You know how you do that. <laughs> oh, that's just lovely. And I'm thinking inside, I'm going to kill everybody in this house. I mean, in this church, I'm going to kill them all. I'm gonna, I mean, I work my finger to the bone with these kids, and I love these kids, and the kids love me, and they're taking them. And then I was really struggling with it, and I really was really struggling with it because, you know, they were taking away the ministry that I built. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember I just went back and forth. And then finally, I felt like the Lord would say, Rodney, you know, where you at? You know, went through all that. And finally, I just said, you know, hey, if that's what the Lord wants to do. That's what the Lord wants to do. And I told Lee, that's a wonderful thing. His last name is Sappington, Lee Sappington. And I told Lee, I said, you know, hey, you know, you're going to be taking over, great. You know, what can I do to help you? Let me tell you some things. And I bought a bunch of books and stuff that I was doing with the kids. And I was like, Hey, take this stuff and, you know, we'll turn it over and we'll do it the right way and so on and so forth. And and he went on to do the youth ministry. And it was right after that that God started speaking to me in dreams and visions that I was going to come to North Carolina and start this church. Right now, if I had been white knuckling the ministry, well, y'all listen to me? If I'd have been white knuckling, oh, that's my ministry, I'm not gonna oh, forget Lee, oh, I'm gonna make it hard for him, I'm gonna tell all the kids not to like him, I'm gonna tell the gang members to have him killed. I could have done that, y'all know, because I, I got it like that. Y'all don't know. You know, I could have held on to that ministry and I probably would have still been there doing the ministry. But is that God's perfect place for me? Is that God's perfect will for me? Did God want me to be there? No. God was saying, Rodney, I want you to let go of the ministry because I have something else for you. And by the way, it's a little bit better. It's a little bit. You'll still get to minister to the kids, but way bigger and a whole lot more kids. Look at all these kids in this room right now. Oh, y'all, y'all ain't a bunch of babies. You understand? So you just, you, you want to let go of the ministry when the Lord is saying, it's time to let go. It's and God will tell you, you'll know it in your heart. Nobody ain't got to come and tell you, it's time for you to step down. You know it. The thing that you need to do is obey the Lord. And if that means, thank you. That's what you need to do. Samuel says, my day, this is my last day on the job. (laughs) I'm old. I'm gray-headed. My sons are with you. What he means is, my sons are still here. My sons are still under the leadership of uh, the leaders in Israel. And, and my, son is, my sons are still here to help do the work of the ministry. Look at verse 3. I love verse 3. Samuel says, and I had you underline it, I am here. Does that sound familiar? It seems like Samuel really likes these words, I am here. Remember when he heard the Lord calling him and he went to Eli and said, hey, did you say something? And Eli said, no, I didn't say anything. He says, well, go back to bed. And he goes back to bed and he goes, hey, he goes back to Eli. Did you say something? I hear something. I hear my name, Samuel, Samuel. And Eli said, hey, the next time you hear it, go back to bed. And if you hear it again, say, here I am, Lord, speak. He likes that. He seems to like those words. He says, here I am, Samuel says, who have I taken advantage of since I've been in the ministry? And if I've done anything wrong, speak now. I love this. Can you imagine a leader or an, on a national scale standing up saying, "Listen, if I've defrauded or oppressed or corrupted anyone in any way, lay it out right now." Can you imagine that? Somebody from the White House saying, "No." If somebody, <laughs> can you somebody from the White House saying, "If I've done anything wrong, if I've taken your donkey, or taken bribes to get into the White House, if I've cheated on my taxes or oppressed anyone?" through health care programs, stand up and accuse me now. If they said that, there would be rides in the streets. Samuel can say, who have I taken advantage of in my entire ministry? Because he knows he walked with integrity before the Lord. It's been said that each of us is three people. Number one, we're the people we think we are. Number two, we're the person others think we are. And thirdly, the person you really are before the Lord. Samuel knows who he really is. Now question, why is Samuel making the point that he hasn't done anything wrong? Is he glorifying himself? I don't think so. I think Samuel wants the people to know that I've not left you a mess. I'm handing off a good legacy of leadership. I'm passing the torch of leadership off and it's burning bright. I've done everything I can do to be a good example. And if Saul turns out to be a poor leader and the torch goes dim, it isn't because Saul had a bad example. The people noticed, the people said, you've not defrauded us in verse four or oppressed us or taken anything out of our hands. And Samuel said, the Lord is witness. King Saul is witness. And now it's time to raise up someone else. Point number two, God is faithful. In verse six through 11, we just read it. Samuel says that in order for God to, Raise us up, someone else. Their hearts have to be prepared. Look at verse six. It's the beginning of what they can do to prepare their hearts. First of all, understand that God is faithful and has shown his faithfulness. Beginning in verse six, Samuel gives them a history lesson. Note this, in giving this history lesson, he isn't focusing on what Israel did. He's focusing on the righteous acts of the Lord in verse seven. Are you looking at it? There's two ways to approach history. You can take a look at what you've done, or you can take a look at what the Lord has done. It's better to focus on what the Lord has done. Also, focusing on what God has done is a lot more pleasant picture. So Samuel says, let's look at the righteous acts of the Lord or the faithful acts of the Lord. And then he begins, look at verse eight. When Jacob had gone into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. Now the first righteous act of the Lord or faithfulness of God is when the Lord delivered them from slavery in Egypt and brought them into the promised land. This was an act of faithfulness of the Lord in the life of Israel. And the second act of faithfulness is in verse 9. Look at that. They forgot the Lord, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines and Moab. In other words, Israel should remember they were disobedient, and because they were disobedient, God allowed their enemies to take them into slavery and sold them into the hands of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor. Anybody remember this guy named Sisera? Anybody remember Uh, write it down. Uh, Judges chapter 4. Judges 4. The king of Canaan is King Jabin, who oppressed God's people for 20 years. King Jabin's commanding army general was Sisera. Judges 4. Sisera obviously went to war college. Did you know there was a war college? I was reading about this. I'm starting to really like Wikipedia. I was reading about war college. I never knew there was a war college. It's a college of war, a war college. And um, you go there, I think it's like a two-year program, and it's an online program as well. And um, you learn war strategies. And when you're done with the course, you get a master's in war strategy. Isn't that interesting? You get a master's degree in war strategy. Well, Sisera probably had a master's degree in war strategy. His army was massive and formidable. He had 900 iron chariots. In those days, iron chariots were like iron tanks. Judges chapter four, Deborah encouraged Barak to go fight Sisera. Now you remember the story? And Barak didn't want to go with De- without Deborah, remember? And Deborah said, Barak, you know God commanded you to go and deploy the troops to fight Sisera. Now get. And Barak says, Deborah... I'll go with you, if you go with me, I'll go with you. Can we say yellow-bellied, girly man? (laughs) Wimpy, Barak, Barrack, whatever happened to real men in our country, whatever happened to real men in our country, just a question. And Deborah said, okay, I'll go with you, but this is a disgrace. Because you won't stand up and be a man, the glory and the victory of the battle won't go to you. It's going to go to a woman. And Barak was asking Deborah to go, not because of her brute strength. He was asking her to go because of her relationship with God. But even that's a problem because you can't do anything for God based on somebody else's relationship with God. And many times a husband trusts in their wife's relationship with God. I've heard it over and over. I've seen it. I met people. I met husbands and, hey, how you, uh, how you doing? Met the husband and wife and, hey, I'm, I've seen you before, haven't I? Yeah, you know, I've been coming for about six months now. This is my husband. Really? Oh, you've been coming? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I found the church first. That's a problem. That is a problem. And that happens all too far too often where the wife goes and finds the church. And then the husband comes along. It should be the opposite. If you're the head of the home, then don't pound the kitchen counter about you're the man of the house and doggone it, you're going to do what I tell you to do. But you're leaving her to oversee the spiritual matters of the house. No, if you're going to leave the home, then leave the home in every area. And we've seen it. I'm going to wait while you clap your hands. That's okay. That's okay. Kids often trusting their parents' relationship with God to get them through. People in church trust the pastor's relationship with God to get them through. Barak was trusting Deborah's relationship with God to get him through. And Barak in Judges chapter 4 and 10,000 men with Deborah prepared for battle and Sisera gathers his armies and 900 chariots to the river of Kishon. But if God is for you, then 900 chariots can't be against you and Barak's army defeated Sisera's army, and every man was killed except one guy. Guess who that was? General Sisera. And the soldiers are probably trying to get the chariots out of the mud. Sisera is running for his life. He sees a tent. He recognizes the people, and he's thinking, oh, I, I know her. I know that lady. I used to party with that lady. I, no, I used, to, I, used to, I used to rule over that lady in another region. And so he runs into the tent. She covered him with a mantle. And Sisera said, stand at the door of the tent. And if any man comes and asks if there's a man here, I want you to lie and tell them no man is here. And he's exhausted. He's running and sleeping in the bed. And while he's sleeping, listen, a woman, her name is Jael, J-A-E-L. She was a Kenite. And she took a nail and she put it right in his temple and drove it right, actually right in his temple and drove it right through to the ground. Talk about a splitting headache. And he died. And it was a great victory for God in Israel because a legendary military leader, a military powerhouse is dead. So in our text, God used Sisera to bring judgment on his people because of of, of their disobedience which is a righteous, faithful act of the Lord. Thirdly, a righteous, faithful act of the Lord is in verse 10. Look at it. Israel should remember that every time they cried out to God, God helped them. Again, judges, we see what we call the sin cycle. You know, it goes like this. When they cried out to God and confessed their sin, they humbled themselves, they repented, and God delivered them. Simple as that. This is one of the righteous acts of the Lord. Something interesting happens, though, and I want you to see in verse 11. Notice Jebel, or, or Jerubbabel, or Jerubabel, pardon me, uh, Bedon, or Bedan, uh, Jephthah, and Samuel. Now, who are these guys? Well, we know who Samuel is. He's the one speaking right now. Jerubbabel is another name for anybody know? Gideon. Very good. Judges 6:32. Write it down. Therefore, on that day he called Jerubbabel saying, "Let Baal plead against him, because he has torn down his altar." Another name for Gideon and Jephthah. Anybody know who Jephthah was? Judges chapter 11, verse 3. Jephthah was the leader of a Jewish mafia. The Jewish mafia. You can check it out for yourself. I'm not making this up. Uh, Judges 11. The Jewish mafia. They were named the Tab Mob. The Tab Mob, the Jewish Mafia, and Jephthah was a leader. And who's this guy Bedon? Oh, we don't know. We have no idea. There's no mention of Bedon in the entire Bible. And of course, scholars go crazy with that. They have to make up something. They people, you know, people cannot accept the fact that they don't know. There's some people that just cannot accept the fact you don't know everything. Some say that this guy, Badon, is Barak with Deborah. And one guy says this guy must be Samson because the name Badon could mean Badon, the son of Samson of the tribe of Samson. And he goes all through these gymnastics trying to prove that. And listen, I say, who cares? I mean, really, who cares? Does it really make a difference? God did a lot of work in delivering Israel that isn't recorded in the Bible. And maybe the Holy Spirit just chose not to include his name. So what? But what we do know is all these guys were deliverers, which tells us that Israel needed a lot of deliverance. Say amen. Some of y'all do too. Amen. If you've been around here at Calvary Chapel, you know Israel's whole story, don't you? Really simple. Seven cycles of sin, which paint the story of their existence in the human condition. Remember I told you that people are walking with God, and God is blessing them, and they're comfortable and prosperous. And then because of the prosperity and the comfort, they start to forget about God. And they begin to lose sight of the Lord because things are going well. And then God allows an oppressor to wake them up and defeat them. And God brings a whooping stick. And then the people begin to cry out to the Lord. And then God in his mercy sends a Jephthah, a deliverer. And then the people are walking with God again and being blessed and prospering. And then they forget about God and the cycle repeats itself. And remember I told you it sounds like this, the people are devoted to God They delve into sin, God sends an oppressor, they're defeated, they deplore their situation, God sends a deliverer, restores them, and delivers them, and then the cycle begins again. Delve, defeat, deplore, deliver. That's Israel's whole history. Delve, defeat, deplore, deliver. They delve into sin. They're defeated by their enemy. They deplore their situation. God sends a deliverer and on and on. The seven, they have seven cycles of that in their history. And the thing I want you to understand is when God brings out the whooping stick. Now, listen to me close. When God brings out the whooping stick or allows the fiery trials, God isn't punishing us. God is disciplining us. And there is a difference between discipline and punishment. And the difference is simple. Look, listen to me. The difference is this. What side of the cross are you on? That's the difference. Those in the Old Testament were on that side of the cross. We as Christians are on this side of the cross. We live after the finished, completed work of Jesus on the cross. So all the punishment that our sin deserved was placed on Jesus. So that God doesn't punish us, he disciplines those who are in Christ on this side of the cross. The difference between punishment and discipline, both of them hurt, but there's a different purpose. Are you listening? Punishment is to make you pay for your sin. Discipline is to train you and teach you the right way. Did you get that? Punishment is to make you pay. Discipline is to teach you. And sometimes we can confuse the two. Because God loves us, he's disciplining us and trying to teach us, and we think that God is punishing us. God loves us. Somebody say amen. And he loves us on this side of the cross. So he's teaching you and training you and maturing you and answering your prayer. You want more of God. And that hurts. You want more of God, and that hurts. What side are you on? Point number three, and finally, look at verse 12. Let me read verse 12 through 25 and let y'all get out of here. Look at verse 12. And when you saw Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, "No." But a king shall rule over us when the Lord your God was your king. Now, therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen, whom you have desired, and take note, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord in verse 14, are you looking at verse 14? If you're looking at verse 14, say amen. If you fear the Lord and you serve him and you obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. However, if... However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but you rebel against the commandment of the Lord and the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Now, therefore, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes is today not the wheat harvest. I will call to the Lord and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive And see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for a king for yourselves. And so Samuel called to the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins the evil of what saints of asking for a king for ourselves. And then Samuel said to the people, Do not fear.
0: You have been listening to Salt and Light, a radio outreach ministry of Pastor Rodney Finch in Calvary Chapel, Cary, located in Apex, North Carolina. Join Pastor Rodney Monday through Friday at this same time. For information regarding service times, you can contact us at 1-800- be salt and light.
1: Let me be-